Does he have a Bible? We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Well, please open it to the book of Nehemiah. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. This quote was made famous by Baptist missionary William Carey, who history calls the father of modern missions. Carey was born in August 1761 in a small town in England. He was the son of a poor school teacher. Carey was taught at an early age to patch shoes to earn a living. However, during his teenage years, Carey's life would be forever changed when he was confronted with the gospel of Christ. He would become a Christian and soon after, Carey would be consumed with this passion for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But this was a problem for Carey in his day. You see, because cross-cultural missions in Baptist life at this time was seen as something obsolete, restricted to the days of the apostles. But when Carey read passages like Matthew 28, with its call to go therefore and make disciples, he understood it to possess a present call upon the church today. So Carey would challenge his Baptist contemporaries to respond to the call of the gospel and go and make disciples of all nations. This wasn't just a, a call that Carey preached. It was a call which he embodied. Alongside his wife and four kids, Carey would uh, spend his life in India proclaiming the gospel to those who had never heard. But it was this motto, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, which drove Carey's life. And he really did pave the way for the modern missionary movement by starting the first missionary society organized by evangelical Christians aimed at carrying the gospel to every part of the world. Carey expected great things from God, and therefore he attempted great things for God by stepping out in faith to serve Him because of who he knew his God to be. This morning... We're pressing pause on our study through the Gospel of Mark to really dive into this book of Nehemiah for the next few months. And as I said, Nehemiah may be a book you haven't considered in a while or maybe ever, but Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament which I believe embodies, carries, quote, in every way. We are calling this series uh, Building from Burden because it is a book which covers the events surrounding Nehemiah's rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. Nehemiah shows us what it looks like to live with a a high view of God, a high view of the Bible, a love for the people of God, and a passion for the glory of God in this world. It shows us what it looks like, I think, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. But most importantly, Nehemiah is a story within the story of the Bible of God's great work of redemption and restoration of His people in Christ Jesus. I want to say that again. Most importantly, Nehemiah is a story within the story of the Bible of God's great work of redemption and restoration of His people in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's how we want to begin this morning. My prayer this morning for this series is that the book of Nehemiah will provide each of us really a, a greater vision of God and His purposes in Christ Jesus, which will in turn embolden us to live, to labor, to build 
for God's glory in this world. Now, before we jump into this study, I think we need to consider Carrie's quote just a bit more personal this morning. I want to ask you, what are you expecting from God? Based upon who you believe God to be, who He has revealed Himself to be in Christ, what are you expecting from Him to do in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in this church? And then from this, what are you willing to attempt for Him? What do you expect from God? And what are you willing to attempt from God? I want to use those questions to kind of frame up our study. We might come back to them throughout the sermon series. But here's my main point this morning. A very simple one. That laboring for the glory of God begins by praying for the purposes of God in and through our lives. Very simple statement. Laboring for the glory of God begins by praying for the purposes of God in and through our lives. Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm going to read down from verse 1 down to verse 11, the entire chapter. It's the word of the Lord to us, the, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. As I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let Your ear be attentive and Your eyes open to hear the prayer of Your servant that I now pray before You day and night for the people of Israel, Your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against You. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted uh, corruptly, uh, very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed with your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Father, after we read your word, we pause and say, help us, Lord, now. We've had... Uh, a few distractions with technology. But Lord, we ask now that You would focus us back to Your Word. Help us to hear rightly. Help me as Your servant to proclaim the truth of the Gospel from the book of Nehemiah. For it and only it will shape us and mold us as a people. I'll be with our time in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I am not a history uh, professor by any means, but we have to dive into history this morning. So about a thousand years after God called Abraham, Israel became a mighty nation under Saul, David, and Solomon. The great temple of Jerusalem was built under the reign of King Solomon as God promised. Israel found itself at the peak of influence and power at this time. But Solomon sadly turned from the Lord. He began to compromise, disobeying the Word of God, committing idolatry, and really leading the nation to do the same. And as had been warned, eventually this sin and idolatry led to the demise of Judah, of the kingdom. In 931, Israel and Judah were divided. Then in 722, Israel fell to the Assyrians. Judah held out until their sin brought the Babylonian destruction led by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Jerusalem was brought to the ground, literally. The temple was dismantled piece by piece. The walls were destroyed and treasures and people of God were marched some 800 miles into slavery in Babylon. We read of this in 2 Chronicles 36 where we read, Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, or maybe your translation has the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And due to their sin and disobedience, God's people found themselves just as their fathers had in Egypt. They were now enslaved under a, a foreign leader. Psalm 131, 137.1 records some of this. We read, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept, and we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But notice from the verse we read in Chronicles, it says Jeremiah that Jerusalem would lay desolate for 70 years until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath, its rest. So something was to happen in 70 years. What was that? Well, the prophet Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 25, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves, even of them. I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands." So in 539, the words of this prophecy would be fulfilled through Cyrus the Great and the Persian nation. Through this pagan king, God would orchestrate the way for His people to return to the land. Because you see, with a, a change in world power came a change in foreign policy, not unlike today. While the Babylonians believed in the subjugation of the peoples to exert their power, these new rulers, the Persians, believed just the opposite. 
They understood the best policy was to allow people to return to their land and worship their own way. In turn, they, would, they thought it would create greater loyalty in the long run. And it was this change in policy which brings about three waves of Jews returning to the land. The first wave returned in 538 by Zerubbabel and Jesu. In Ezra chapters 1-6, through 6, we can read of that. They were able to rebuild the temple in 516 under King Darius. The second wave was led by the scribe Ezra around 458, who was used by the Lord to instruct the people for, from God's Word how to worship rightly again. Read about this in Ezra chapter 7. Nehemiah, as we will be studying over the next several months, makes up this third wave who arrive some 13 years after Ezra in 445. So, that's the background that brings us to where we are in the pages of Scripture. And then it's this background which brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1 where we begin with what I'm calling a, a holy concern in verses 1 through 3. Now, our introduction to this book is rather brief. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. This book reads something like an inspired journal entry by this man named Nehemiah. Now, who is he? Well, he's the son of Hakaliah. What does that mean? I have no idea. In fact, we know nothing of Hakaliah, which I believe actually tells us something very important about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a common dude. He's not a known figure. He comes from no special family. He's no scribe like Ezra. He's no prophet or priest like Jeremiah. He's just an ordinary Joe. But an ordinary Joe with an extraordinary call upon his life, as we're going to see. Maybe I should just say to you before we begin, don't ever think you are below God's service. Don't ever think you're too old or you're out of step to where God can't use you. Nehemiah shows us what it looks like for a regular guy, a regular girl, a regular church member to live for the glory of God in this world. The book of Nehemiah reminds us there is no one in this room beyond God doing a great work through. Now, Nehemiah does have an influential position. We're not told how he gets this position, but if you look down at the final verse of chapter 1, we read, Now I was cupbearer to the king. To be cupbearer was a position of influence, to be sure. The person would taste the wine and food to make sure it was fit for the king. They would be highly trusted by the king. And they would be given close proximity, really, and immense influence. So this is odd, right? I mean, a Jewish exile being put in some influential position like this seems a bit odd. Well, yes, Nehemiah is not the first person, though, we read of in the Bible with such good fortune under a pagan king. How about Joseph in Egypt? Moses under Pharaoh or Esther under Queen Xerxes, becomes queen under Xerxes. The description of Nehemiah in the first chapter says very little about Nehemiah, which I think is essential into rightly understanding this book. Look, Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah. Can I say that again? The book of Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah. Before we start this book, I want to be clear that the purpose of Nehemiah in the Bible is not to teach us leadership principles. 
Well, we may, we may find and we will find application in this regards, but this is not what the book of Nehemiah is about. While we study this book, we should be inspired by Nehemiah's trust in God. His love for the people, his prayer life, his energy, his planning, his leadership, and his labors with others, all in effect to do a great work for the glory of God. Yes and amen. We will note all of that. But if that's all we see, we miss the mark of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about the sovereign plans and purposes of our faithful God in executing his great plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. We cannot miss this. Our sovereign God is behind every action in the book of Nehemiah. As we've already noted, He moves the hearts of kings and nations. He causes foreign policy to change. He guides Nehemiah's every step, providing Him not only approval from the king to build, but as we're going to look at next week, He gets the, he, he gets the actual credit card from the king to fund the whole thing. Nehemiah, like every other book in the Bible, is about God's great and glorious purposes in Jesus Christ. We can't miss this. Now, we do learn something especially important concerning Nehemiah's heart in these opening verses. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev. I'm going to tell you guys a secret. If there's a name in the Bible you don't know how to say, if you just say it fast and confident, no one else knows how to say it. So you just move like you got it. Even if you put a little twist on the end like Chislev or something like that, you got it. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel, the Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. When Nehemiah learns... Some Jewish visitors are present. He begins to interrogate them. He knows of the previous two ways of Jews who have returned, and he is concerned, which leads him to ask questions. Basically, how are things going? Specifically, he's concerned about the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem, the text says. But sadly, he hears things aren't well. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, given Nehemiah's response here, but in verse 4 especially, this must be referring to more than the original destruction of the walls. There There must have been some attempt to rebuild the walls which he now learns have been thwarted. I think probably referring back to Ezra chapter 4. And without this wall, the city is left vulnerable. It's indefensible and it's open to attack. But the phrase in verse 4, that the city is in great trouble and shame, I think speaks to the real concern here. Maybe your translation reads disgrace. Nehemiah is concerned for something much more than just his people and his home country. In fact, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah was born in captivity. All he knew was a foreign land. He's never seen the city or the temple himself. In fact, it's been 141 years since the city was toppled by the Babylonians. And yet Nehemiah is concerned, is so concerned, the first thing he does is ask these men about the city. Nehemiah is concerned about the exiles and the city because of what it represents. 
Jerusalem represents the city where God had chosen to set His glory. And the Jewish people are God's people, those whom God has set His great name upon. Jerusalem is the city upon which the glory of God rested. If we look down to Nehemiah's prayer at the end of verse 9, he speaks of Jerusalem as the place that God had chosen to make His name dwell there. Nehemiah is consumed with the glory of God's great name. He understands what's at stake in this return to the land. What I'm trying to say is his concern was a holy one. The state of the city represents the dishonoring of God's great name. Nehemiah has a holy concern for the the glory of God in Jerusalem. I want you to consider this morning what concerns you. What concerns do you have for your life? Your family's life? Your kid's life? Your future? Our nation? Election season is ramping up and there will be many concerns to consider. As we begin this study, I want you to reflect upon your life and consider the concerns you have. But I want you to consider your concerns alongside Nehemiah's. And I want you to consider if your concerns, I want to consider if my concerns, I want to consider if our church's concerns are, are high enough. Nehemiah possessed a holy concern. A concern for the, the glory of God's great name in this world. It will be this holy concern which will drive every step in the book of Nehemiah. It will be this holy concern which will motivate every action that he takes as he attempts to do a mighty work for God's glory. Church, I think we need to consider this morning if our concerns are high enough. Do your concerns, those things which move you to action, ever rise beyond yourself, your family, your country, your career, your comfort, your success, your fill-in-the-blank. Nehemiah sits in the capital of Susa, a winter palace for royalty. He's, he's good friends with the king. He has no reason to respond the way he does in verse 4 unless his concern is higher than himself. Nehemiah is a man driven with a holy concern for the glory of God's great name in this world. And church, I want to ask us, are we? As I said earlier, if I'm honest and reflect, my concerns often don't go higher than myself. We find a holy concern here. We start with, but a holy concern demands a holy response. And that's what we see in verses 4 through 11. And we need to notice Nehemiah's response to his concern. He doesn't complain. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't start scheming with his friends or go and grab his hammer and figure out what needs to be done immediately. He doesn't take to Facebook in order to get his friends and people on his side. Nehemiah prays. 
Verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Tears are often where restoration begins. Psalm 51, 17, the psalmist reminds us the sacrifices of God are a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Chuck Quarles says, God never blesses a tearless ministry, a tearless endeavor. Nehemiah is a man of action, no doubt. He is no idle man. This book will confirm that. He's a man who, who gets to work. Nehemiah plans and Nehemiah produces. But he's first a man who prays. And we find no less than ten different prayers in the book of Nehemiah in just 13 short chapters. Prayer is that essential ingredient to any great work for the glory of God. And I think there's at least three aspects of Nehemiah's prayer we need to consider this morning. So first, Nehemiah prays patiently. Notice this is the month of, of, of Chislev, something like November or probably December, when Nehemiah gets word of Jerusalem. And he begins fasting and praying. But if we look down to chapter 2, verse 1, it's the month of Nisan, March or April, when he approaches the king to make his bold request. So Nehemiah, this man of action, spends four months patiently praying to his God before he does anything. He waits and he prays. And his prayer does not begin with him, his concerns, or his problems. In fact, Nehemiah's request doesn't come until the last line of his prayer. Nehemiah begins his prayer by reorienting his heart on the greatness of his God. He begins in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Nehemiah's declaration that the Lord is the God of heaven is a reminder that God is not bound by a location or a city. He's the sovereign Lord, the God of heaven. And He is also the great and awesome God. He's great, all-powerful and mighty, and He's awesome. Now, awesome is one of those really throwaway words in our day, right? Everything's awesome. And when everything's awesome, nothing's awesome. But the word here used speaks of God's His holiness, His, His majesty. It means to inspire awe or terror or even fear. Nehemiah prays to the great and awesome God. And to the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Nehemiah prays to the God who is perfectly reliable. His God is faithful, unlike Israel, unlike us. He always keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Steadfast love, that's that great Old Testament word we looked at deeply in the book of Ruth. Defining God's particular, loyal, steadfast, faithful love towards His people. Nehemiah knows this. He prays this. Maybe I can remind you, I think we learned from Nehemiah, that great works of God will never be fueled by little thoughts of God. Great works of God are never fueled by little thoughts of God. Thinking small of God is thinking high of ourselves. 
Small thoughts of God always make difficulties, our difficulties, larger, heavier, and more weightier. We need in times of trouble is a fresh and full vision of God, as Nehemiah declares here. Secondly, though, Nehemiah prays personally. It's important to remember, as we noted earlier, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He's played no direct part in the events surrounding the exile. Yet, look at how he prays in verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. The personal pronouns we, I, and our jump off the page here. Just as Nehemiah prayed regarding God's covenant love, which he is connected to the people, Nehemiah prays his sin as being connected to God's covenant community as well. So he prays personally here confessing his sin before the Lord. Nehemiah personally owns his part in God's judgment. It's not just the people of Israel's sin. It is his sin which led to the demise of Jerusalem. It wasn't just his father's sin which brought about the exile. It was his personal rebellion. When asked to write the essay for the London Times, uh, answering the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton offered this short but profound answer. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton's essay read, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Accepting responsibility for your sin is the first essential step in the Christian life. It's the first essential step towards restoration. No one disagrees there's something wrong with the world today. But becoming a Christian demands you confessing that something is wrong with you. Sin is not out there in the world alone. Sin is out there in the world because it's manifest in us. You see, because you sin, because you are a sinner. And your sin is a holy affront to a holy God. And you and I deserve punishment for our sin. So until you are willing to personalize and particularize your sin before God, you cannot receive the personal and particular steadfast love of God in Christ. It's one thing to believe Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's altogether different to know that He died for your sins. In the movie The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, the director, made a point to film his hand as the one nailing Jesus to the cross. There's a very dramatic scene there with a, ham, a hammer slamming down on the nail as it hits Jesus' hand. And Mel Gibson wanted to make it a point that he was the one who threw that blow when it was filmed. It was his symbolic gesture stating his belief that his personal sin was responsible for Jesus' death. The good news of the gospel is God's personal and particular love, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness 
for our sins in Christ. That's the gospel. But this can only be applied to those who are willing to personally own their particular sin through repentance. You see, prayer is the predominant ingredient in accomplishing a great work for the glory of God. Why? Because it has to do in large part with getting our hearts right before the Lord. Attuning our eyes to see the Lord rightly and see ourselves correctly. It's personal. But it's also purposeful. That's what we see next. Nehemiah prays purposefully. Verse 8 reminds us that we don't pray aimlessly as God's people. We pray with purpose. We pray from the purposes of God. And we pray, we pray for the purposes of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And this is what we see Nehemiah doing here. Verse 8, that great covenantal word in the Bible. Go back and trace it. Go back to the Exodus account. Remember. It was the God of the Exodus who remembered the people who were in slavery. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have chosen by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah comes praying purposely from the pages of Deuteronomy. And his prayer, in his prayer, he affirms God's just judgment for the nation's sin. But he also recalls God's promise of mercy, faithfulness, forgiveness, and restoration of his people. Nehemiah's prayer flows straight from the stream of God's great plan of redemption revealed in the scriptures. Notice he references the Exodus account. The great redeeming act of God in the Old Testament. Where he referenced, where he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt with great power and a strong hand, the text says. But he also prays for God's future promise of restoration. Nehemiah understood his life, he understood the people of Israel's existence. To be found within the stream of God's purposes in the Bible. He prays directly from the Word of God. He prayed for redemption and for restoration. And the reality is, Nehemiah will see this partially in his life. Nehemiah will rebuild the wall. If you haven't read the book of Nehemiah, I'm going to spoil it for you. Worship will be ultimately restored in Jerusalem. Many Jews will return. But as the final pages of Nehemiah remind us, it's going to be short-lived. Ezra and Nehemiah's attempt in the end fail. Sin and idolatry will bring about the demise of the nation again leaving it in the state we find it when we come in the Gospel of Mark. 
Look, we need a greater Ezra. We must have a better Nehemiah to not just reinstitute temple worship, but to create in us hearts that can truly worship God. We need one who will come not to bring about the temporary restoration of a nation, but redemption and restoration for all nations. While Nehemiah leaves the comfortable refuge of Susa, a winter retreat for Persian kings, out of concern for God's glory in his people, the Lord Jesus Christ will leave the comforts of heaven as the manifestation of the glory of God to redeem his people through his death upon the cross. So Nehemiah finally gets to his request in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah speaks of himself. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. After prayer comes action. Next week we're going to unpack the particulars of Nehemiah's request here. But notice that Nehemiah is willing to step out and be used by God. He's willing to to put his neck on the line for the glory of God. He's willing to be the answer to the request. It's it's one thing to pray, God, do something in my family. It's another thing to say, God, use me. I'm willing to be a part of it. It's one thing to say, God, reach my neighbors for Christ. It's another thing to knock on the door and invite them over for dinner. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Nehemiah, we find a man with a holy concern. burden which forces him to respond by sitting and praying and waiting on his great and awesome God but then we find a man who is willing to stick his neck on the line and pray that the purposes of God will be fulfilled in and through him The question I'm asking myself, I ask you. Are we willing to do that? What are we expecting from God? What are we attempting for God? Now, I I know we could we could run with that quote and come up with all kind of unbiblical ideas to pack that in. And so maybe we should contextualize it a bit this morning. And we will through the table. As we talk about the holy concern, the holy burden for the glory of God, what do we mean? We mean the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean. We mean God's great work of redemption and restoration in Christ. Though we were a people not bound to slavery in Egypt, not exiled in a foreign land, but bound to the slavery of our sin and exiled from the very presence of God. We were foreigners and strangers without hope in the world, Paul tells us. 
And we stood under the just penalty of God's righteous judgment for our sin. But God would send His very Son who possessed the holy concern for the glory of His Father. He lived the life that Israel should have lived but did not. And He lived the life we should have lived but cannot. And then He died the death we deserved for our sin, for our rebellion, purchasing our redemption from our bondage of sin and restoring us to the Father. It's this good news which we must center our lives on this morning. And it's this redemption and restoration which we will now take part in and celebrate this morning. So, I would invite the uh, worship team back up this morning and our ushers can come forward as well. Before we move to the table, I want to have us reflect a bit this morning. Maybe pause before we pray and I think even consider that idea this morning as what concerns us in our life. What burdens us? What moves us? What's the motivation behind our life? It must be the glory of God and the person of Christ. And that's what we will take part of here in just a minute. So let's pause and reflect before we pray.